You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Anyway, so let's start a sermon today with this. Um, what, happens, what happens when persecution hits the church? What ha- a number of things happen. Okay, Here's one thing that happens for sure. When persecution hits the church, the church is instantly refined. Like instantly, the church is refined. When persecution hits the church, here's another thing. Think of it this way. When persecution hits the church, instantly, many, look here for a second, many good, good things instantly become irrelevant. Like things that aren't bad necessarily at all. Like they're, in fact, they're, they're good. But when persecution hits the church, certain good things will become irrelevant because all of a sudden they're not essential. They're not essential to the survival and to the growth of the church in honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, when persecution hits the church, certain priorities plummet. Like certain conversations you're having today, if strong persecution hits, you're not having them anymore. They don't matter. In the scale of what's important, they just kind of fell off the ledge. And then other priorities will skyrocket because the vision and clarity of the church has never been more real of what we're actually needing to do at this moment within serious trial, and in this case, persecution. Okay, so for example, let's, let's say a strong dose, and it's growing in our day, it's growing in our day, but a strong dose of persecution hit the North American church. I believe, for example, 90% of the leadership books that have been written for the church in the last 30 years, 90% become, again, irrelevant in a moment, just like that. They just because they're just not relevant anymore. Again, like marketing strategies gone, leadership techniques useless, right? Arguing over which song we like, old, new—that's all. It's all gone. You don't care about. You're just happy to sing a song when the church is under heavy persecution. All these things that we hold so dear, all of a sudden, they just are not important because again, the vision is so clear. So as I've thought about this over many years now. The persecuted church teaches us very, very valuable lessons because the persecuted church ultimately will be focusing and placing their time upon and within that which is most important to God. And so then I say to myself, I say, well, Robbie, if that is true then, does that mean it's not true now for us? Should we not then in wisdom begin our ministry with that which is most foundational and guaranteed to be blessed by God himself? Is not that what our church should do? Is that not what my marriage should do? Is that not what my life should do and my family? And the answer is yes, of course. Wisdom says start with that upon which God guarantees to bless. The persecuted church then it has massive lessons. And we learn today again from the persecuted church in Acts chapter 12. The very first thing the church does when under significant trial and hardship, the very first thing they do is Pray. Prayer. Prayer becomes the absolute go-to of the church, again, in the most important times and seasons, and that must be true for us as well. Listen, loved ones, where there's supernatural power, there will always be supernatural prayer. You will not have one without the other, biblically speaking. This is what we seek to learn more about today. We want to see supernatural power. Then we must be a church depending upon, relying upon supernatural prayer. All right, get ready. The Holy Spirit's coming after you today. I'm excited about that. He's coming after you because he loves you. 
And he's going to come kind of knock some hard shelled hearts and crack it up and make it soft. He's coming to others with conviction. He's pursuing people down, men, women, and children, to call you to that which is irrefutable based on Scripture. Acts 12, a glorious chapter. Let's start with the first five verses. It says this. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands. Here comes the persecution. Laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. That means he beheaded him. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Notice the response, verse 5. Really our thesis for our text today. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So check out the persecution, but check out the prayer. Point number one is this, serious heartbreak and yet earnest prayer. Serious heartbreak and yet earnest prayer. Now in verse one, we are introduced to Herod the king. This is Herod Agrippa. He's an evil man, as we'll find out. He's a proud man, as we'll find out. And he's a doomed man, as we will also find out. Who is Herod Agrippa, Herod the king? He was the grandson of Herod the Great. There's multiple Herods in the Bible. You might remember Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who murdered all the babies in Bethlehem surrounding the birth of Christ. Herod the king, in our text, was also the nephew of Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas was the one who beheaded John the Baptist. So not exactly a line of saints. Here you have Herod Agrippa in chapter 12. He will carry on the tradition of those who have gone before him along his family line. Now verse 1 tells us that Herod got violent against the church. Why did he do this? The text tells us because it pleased the Jews. Herod here in chapter 12 was the politician of politicians. And all the negative stereotypes of politicians, this was Herod the king. He loved popularity. He sought approval. The Jews did not like him. He did not have Jewish blood in him. So he was doing whatever he could to be liked by them, to gain notoriety, to gain the applause, to seek their reward, that he might gain his status. He was so self-serving. Again, he was a true politician uh, going for self-interest again in all the negative that we understand them to be. Verse 2 gives the reader a shock here, just kind of out of nowhere. And verse 2 bluntly and briefly explains the apostle James was killed, was beheaded um, by Herod. Now, this is significant, okay, because this is the first politically motivated murder ever in terms of a Christian, a Christ follower, being murdered by political motivations. Um, the murder or the murder of Stephen was by religious motivation. The Jews, again, sought him to be killed. This here is Herod, politically motivated and incited. He is the first one to kill Christians, again, for kind of self-gain and to please people around him. Now, what's interesting here, Herod the Great in murdering, or Herod the King in this way, and murdering James would be the first of a line of dozens and hundreds and thousands of kings throughout history that would murder Christ followers by the thousands, millions, and, and hundreds of millions throughout history. In the last hundred years, we believe, more Christians have died for the cause of Jesus Christ, again, by political leaders than ever before, again, throughout history. It's, a, it's, it's the demonic, 
evil satanic design to hurt and kill the church again, which started right here in chapter 12 with Herod the king and has continued on ever since. And will continue on until Jesus Christ again returns. As we see the Antichrist who will rise up and be soundly and utterly humiliated and defeated again by the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns by the breath of the mouth of Jesus Christ. He will strike down again the man of lawlessness and all who gather with him to oppose Jesus Christ. So we see here though that the Bible says that James, the brother of John, was executed. So that's hugely significant. Like that's James, Peter, James, and John, James. That is, again, James, sons of thunder, James and John, James. That is James, inner three of Jesus, James. Like, this is, this is a huge deal. There are only two apostolic deaths recorded um, in Scripture, right, like, of the apostles. The other one was Paul, but the details of his death wasn't described. It was just his death was imminent. This is the only apostolic, one of the apostles, that death is recorded, again, like this, in this kind of detail. So, we see this happening in verse 2. We place ourselves, again, within the church and imagine the grief. Imagine the grief. James. James has been executed by Herod. Now remember, up until this point, the apostles seemed to be untouchable. Yeah, they got arrested, but they got freed. Yeah, they were under tre- tre- tremendous threat, but they were released and they were able to keep on preaching. I mean, they, you can got to get to other big like Stephen, sure, but the apostles? The apostles seemed to be untouchable But all of a sudden, you have a massive dose of reality that hits the church. Let's stop here for a second. This is an important principle of application. Loved ones, notice this, okay? The church is precisely in God's will right now, and James is is beheaded. They They are precisely under the will of God. Many awesome things are happening. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this isn't out of God's control. This isn't out of God's sovereignty. All of a sudden, one of their top people and leaders is executed under the will of God. Let me, just, let me just caution us very, very carefully. Sometimes we paint God's will out to be what is our will, not God's will. We are so focused sometimes of living here and now that we forget the moment James actually enters from this life to the next, he actually starts to live for eternity in the presence of Christ forever. He's not regretting that. Sometimes, again, we understand, we place our own desires and our own wills upon God's. But we see right here another tremendously clear example. They were precisely in the will of God, and yet one of their own was brutally murdered and died. Let's be very careful that we don't place expectations upon our lives that Jesus Christ never promised for us in the first place. That's when we get really disappointed And I'm reading this, I'm just like, a lot of them must have been like, what in the world is happening? Listen again, God's ways are not our own. Things happen all the time that we don't understand. We trust him to the very end, and one day we will see perfectly, and we will see Jesus Christ face to face, and all these things will make sense. But in the meantime, we are taught, and we are called to trust in him, even when we don't understand. That's a powerful process and path of Christian maturity that many in our day have devised a form of God's will that is nowhere near biblical and is more about human pleasure than it is about trusting in the sovereignty of God. It's interesting here, you this massive dose of reality that hits the church. Remember um, in Mark chapter 10, James and John, the sons of thunder, as they are called, they go up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we want to ask something of you. 
And Jesus says, what is it? And they said, we want to sit on your right hand and left hand in glory. And Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking. Can you bear the cup that I prepared for you? And they say, in their naivete, they say, yes, we can. The cup that Jesus is referring to is in part fulfilled again right here with James as the cup of death and his suffering again and death for Jesus Christ as being a follower of Jesus Christ. James and John, they are seeking the glory of the Lord, but they don't really understand exactly what they're asking for. And Jesus explained, when James has found out right here, and John later on again, he would be exiled, and eventually his life again, he would pass away from this world into the next as well as a tremendous disciple of Jesus Christ. You know, there's an incredible story that's shared from Eusebius. He was um, a tremendous church historian in the late 200s, early 300s, and he passes on a story from Clement of Alexandria about a soldier that walked with James towards his execution. The soldier was so impacted by the witness of James as James faced death. The soldier um, gave his life in the witness of James to Jesus. The soldier gave his life to Jesus Christ and declared himself to be a follower of Jesus Christ to the point that when James was beheaded, this soldier was also beheaded for his testimony in the Lord Jesus Christ by the impact of his witness of walking beside James again to his death. Just amazing. I believe those things. I believe the power of the apostles, how closely they walk with the Lord and trusting in him. They would honor him to the very end and lives would absolutely be transformed around them. God, give us just a, a, a smidge of that in our own lives to the power and the testimony of the Holy Spirit within us. Verse 3 then tells us that Herod saw that James's execution pleased the Jews. So then what does he do? He arrests Peter. He's like, I got James. Now I'll get the real big shot. I'll get Peter and I will be popular and I will have people applaud me and I will be liked and I will grow in status. This was Herod, man. This is, this is who he was. Notice our text says in verse 3 too, this happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread that immediately followed the Passover. Why is that significant? Well, Jewish law prohibited any trials or sentencing during this time. That is likely why Peter was delayed in his execution. However, it's also probably because Herod wanted as many, Passover was the busiest time by far of the whole year in Jerusalem. He wanted as many people as possible there to see the execution of Peter that in the end everyone said, look at Herod, he's so amazing. He'll, he killed Peter, the leader of the Christians, those who are following Christ. So Peter was put in prison. Notice the detail. Four squads of soldiers in verse 4. Sounds like overkill, doesn't it? That's four times four. 16 soldiers. Maximum security. Four different watches of soldiers over four different shifts. After the Passover, Herod intended him, it says, to bring him out. See that? To bring him out to the people. Why? Why? What does that mean? Herod wanted a public trial. Herod wanted a public show. Herod wanted a public execution so he would be seen in the glorious light of all the people again giving him applause and reward for this. So what a heartbreaking time this is for the church. You know the big three, Peter, James, and John, one is beheaded, one is in maximum security prison. And here we have, here we have the third time in the book of Acts already Peter has been imprisoned. Now you know the church, right? The church is aware of what happened in Acts chapter 5. When some of the disciples were in prison and the angel came and supernaturally opened the door of the prison and they walk out and they were set free. The apostles also prayed in Acts chapter 4 in the midst of being imprisoned again and the threats coming against them. As we heard in that awesome video leading up to the sermon today, I'm so thankful that video blessed me so much. 
We heard, too, that they didn't pray again, that they would be able to hide and be saved. They prayed that they would have boldness as they were released to continue to preach the gospel. Remarkable. So what happens as all this happens, this incredibly hard time? Verse 5 happens. Look at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer. Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the earnest prayer. Circle that, underline that. That's so important. Earnest. The word earnest can mean um, unremittingly or fervently as a good translation. Fervently. Um, that word earnest is the same word, root word at least used in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus in his agony over his upcoming death and crucifixion. Another use of this word is to stretch a muscle to its absolute limits. The church was fervently stretching themselves in prayer, continuously, fervently calling out to the Lord, hey, church, church, prayer is the muscle of the church. You don't exercise the muscle that can't go strong. you got to exercise the muscle, the prayer. Again, prayer is the muscle of the church. I love the insight here, too. Here you have the, the collision of two powers. You have the world wielding its, wielding its physical sword, literally cutting off heads and imprisoning people by force. And that power of the world is met by the power of the Lord and the power of the church. And the power of the church is not physical sword. The power of the church is prayer. They combat this, this colliding, this collision of forces, one with physical, one with spiritual. And which do you think is more powerful? Which do you think, again, will win? Charles Spurgeon, he said this about the power of prayer. He says, my own soul's conviction is that prayer is the grandest power in the entire universe. No More powerful than the sword, more powerful than governments, more powerful than anything humankind can come up with. That's Spurgeon's conviction. May it be our conviction. Our conviction. That prayer. Now, now, now. Many of us, we will live this way as though this is not true. We will live as though it is one of multiple powers we can access. But at the end of the day, if your theology is right, there is no greater power in the entire universe, this is so true, than the power of prayer that is offered to God Almighty through His Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, just think of that video we saw to lead up to this message today. The overwhelming evidence of everything that happened in the book of Acts through the early church was based on prayer. It was based on prayer. When our theology lines up with our lives, then we start to live out the power of prayer. What I'm about to say right now, I'm not seeking to make you feel guilty, but I am loving it if you would feel conviction over this. Why is it that some of us have never done the doors of this church in the midst of a church-wide prayer meeting? Again, I'm not trying to make guilt stinks. Guilt is nothing. But what I'm suggesting to you, and there's different reasons for this, is that when your theology is accurate, because you can't argue with me right now based on what's being said, because if you're arguing with me, you're arguing with God. It's just in the Bible. Without prayer, we have no chance. So again, the church or the people or the family or the marriage, whatever it is, if they don't pray, there's something severely disconnected with what they say they probably believe and how they actually live. The church understood the theology and the church went for it big time. 
serious heartbreaking and earnest prayer. Again, listen, I, I don't want, I don't, in Jesus' name, I don't want guilt, man. It just serves no purpose. It lasts for a couple of minutes and then fades off. But the conviction, see, what I do in my life all the time, I continually preach to myself the theology that I know is true. And in this case, the theology is, Robbie, if you don't pray, you're done. You have no power. God holds all the power. You must pray. Pray unceasingly. You must pray to the one who holds the power. There's no point in the church again. We must understand what does God bless. In this case, massive dependence upon him. That's what he blesses. He blesses the humble, those who are broken, those who depend on him. He opposes the proud. He opposes the arrogant. He opposes the self-righteous. He opposes those who are self-dependent. But he works in and dwells with those who are lowly and broken and contrite in spirit. One of the best ways we show that is through prayer. So, serious heartbreak, yet earnest prayer. Number two, an impossible situation and yet answered prayer. An impossible situation and yet answered prayer. So look at verse six now. This text, this text is so good. All right. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two, look at, look at the details of the Bible, okay? Bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so, and he said to him, wrap your cloak. Look, at, look how practical this is. I love it. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And Peter went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them on its own accord. Awesome, right? And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure. Look at all that Peter has seen, all that he's experienced already in the building of the early church. He's still, there's a part of him that's like, is this really happening? And like, did he really believe what was going on? He says, now I'm sure that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Okay, so let's start with this glorious text. Let's start with this impossible situation, okay? Peter is under maximum security. You have four squads of soldiers, so four times four, four different watches of soldiers throughout a 24-hour period. Two soldiers were chained to Peter while sleeping. Okay, that's not only awkward, right? That's also an impossible escape, don't you agree? It's impossible to escape from that. Then you have two more soldiers who are guarding the doors to the entrance of the cell. I mean, that's quite the security here. Now, Peter had already escaped once from prison. You have to think Herod heard about that happening right there in Jerusalem. He's like, no, no, not this time. You might have gotten away somehow last time. There's no way. And he made it, set it upon himself to make sure that Peter would not escape again the foolishness of the ways of humanity when it really comes down to it when you're trying to oppose God. And I just love verse 7. I love verse 7. Look at verse 7. Give you a chance just to read it again. I love the power of God in verse 7. I love the supernatural in verse 7. I love the light that shines in that dark cell. The angel shows up and however that looks, I'm, I'm going I'm to play that DVD or digital form, whatever that is in heaven. I want to see that, man. What did the light look like? It comes from the angel and it's shining in that dark place. That's an awesome, awesome thing. I love how the angel has to strike Peter. 
Do you see that? I'm not making that up. It's right there in the text. Look at it. The angel shows up and has to strike Peter. Now, time out a second. Wait a second. We, we know from the text that that very day, Peter is about to lose his head for his faith in Jesus Christ. And he's sleeping like a baby. Like he is snoring, apparently. Or he is in deep sleep at the very least. To the point the angel has to come and either kick him or strike him and say, hey, wake up. It's like the teenagers sleeping long into the hours of the morning. You come up and you're shaking them to get the, wake up, wake up. Son, most of the time. Wake up, wake up. Right, wait, the angel, I, I love that that's there. Now, a few chapters from now, Paul is going to be in prison with Silas. And he's going to be singing. Who does that? Luke's two heroes of the early church are Peter and Paul. One sings in prison, the other sleeps like a baby on the night of his execution. Isn't it interesting? In a day which we live in with sleeping obsession, sleeping pillows, sleeping mattresses, sleeping sheets, sleeping pills, it's all sorts of sleeping and medication, just trying to get a good night's sleep. And here is Peter sleeping between two men chained the night before his death and is fast asleep when an angel shows up to the point the angel has to kick him because he's sleeping so soundly. Praise the Lord. Amen? <laughs> I mean, praise the Lord. And you know what? No wonder Peter said in 1 Peter 5 verse 7, ready, ready, this is for somebody right now, he said, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. <sighs> right, right, right? That's awesome. That's awesome. Peter's so filled with the Spirit of God. He's in such pursuit of the strength and the glory of God that the Holy Spirit allows him to sleep so peacefully on the night that he was supposed to be executed because, he, listen again, if you believe you know your future is 100% secure at the end of the day, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? And just as Paul said, right, and the peace of God, this is for someone right now, and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Are you like, is that possible? Absolutely it is. It's possible even within the impossible. This is what happens here. I love the practical. Like the angel shows up. Again, I, I love God's word. Isn't the Bible amazing? God's word. The angel shows up and basically says this. Hey, Peter, get up. Get dressed. Let's get going. Right? Get up. Get dressed. Quick. Let's get going. Follow me. I love that. I love that. And look at our God in this scene. Look at, look at our God. The efforts of man to imprison Peter, and it's made to look so silly. Peter's chains fall off, sleeping between the two soldiers. The soldiers at the doors are so fast asleep, sawing logs. They just walk through the prison door. And verse 10, the iron gate, sounds heavy. The iron gate opens by itself. I just, you know, Peter, whatever he's thinking at that moment, he's walking through and... He's like, that's cool, man. You know, he's like kind of going through and he's like, God is amazing. God is so awesome. Can you believe that? It opens on its own accord. I can, I, for me, like, I love that there in verse 10. For me, I'm just like, God does what, God does what, God, God, my God is awesome. Like nothing can stop him. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm reading this. I'm like, great are you, Lord. You know what I mean, like you are so, you can do the smallest of things, the biggest of things. You put the stars in the heavens and the universe and you open any door you want to just supernaturally. Nothing will stop you. And I'm like, and I'm on God's team. I like my chances. You know what I'm saying? I'm just like, yeah, yeah. Like this, is, this is going well for me today again. Because my God cannot lose. Even when things go horribly wrong, they're horribly right. Because God is in charge. 
And then in verse 11, Peter comes to himself, and again, there's, you know, you can say seeds of uncertainty, maybe even doubt, or Peter, he, he's surprised. He himself, he's already been released supernaturally from prison, but he's even surprised. Now I'm sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me. I guess he wasn't totally sure before that, right? Because maybe he's just saying, well, you never know. The hand of Herod from all that the Jewish people were expecting. I mean, what a scene this is. An impossible situation. And yet answered prayer. I'll say it again. An impossible situation, humanly speaking. And yet answered prayer. I love this quote from Thomas Watson. He says this. The angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. Yeah, that's a good one. And they're writing that one down. Yeah, that's a good one. The angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer. It was prayer that fetched the angel. God, forgive us for praying so little. God, you know, in some ways, like, as, as much as our church, I desire this church to be so much to be built on prayer. I know there's so, there's so far to go. There's so far to go in my own life, Lord. In my marriage and family, there's so far to go. As much as, Lord, as I'm thankful for prayer, I'm thankful for the burden to pray, I, I just confess, Lord, forgive me for so many moments of having weak prayer or little prayer or lacking prayer. And Lord, as a church, forgive us. God, we believe. Help our unbelief. Amen? We believe, but, but Lord, help our unbelief. Our unbelief proven by our our lack of prayer. Because we understand here today, again, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible. I mean, if, if the book of Acts has taught us anything, as we've gone through this, the book of Acts has, has taught us that God is the God of the impossible, again and again and again. God working his will through those who desire to be used and fervently seeking him. What's amazing in the third point, so heartbreak, earnest prayer, impossible situation, answered prayer, but now we see this, which is encouraging. The miracle is reported, and yet doubting prayer. You wouldn't see this coming. But I love that this is here, church. I love that this is here. Verse 12, it makes us just feel encouraged because we're not alone in our weakness. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. They, they, they had a prayer meeting for Peter. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, by the way, they've been praying for days here, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy. She did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting, no, 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 trust me, trust me. It is his angel. <laughs> and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But the motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and the brothers. Then he departed, and he went to another place. Okay, so this is a remarkable and a humorous scene. Again, don't you love how real the Bible is? Here we have amazing, fervent believers but they are normal, struggling believers too. There was earnest prayer, but there was doubting prayer. Their, their prayers are answered, and when they hear the report of their answered prayer, their first response is, we don't believe it. 
Now, you got to love Rhoda, right? Rhoda, probably young. Rhoda, she hears Peter's voice. She doesn't open the door. She runs in joy. She's so fired up. She tells them, the answer from the prayer meeting to the report of answered prayer is, you're out of your mind. <laughs> you're out of your mind. How's that for faith? You could ask them, well, then what are you bother praying for? If you think someone's insane for coming back for a report your prayer's been answered, then what are we actually praying about? Why, why are we saying the prayers? But again, you know, as I say that, I got grace for everyone here. I got grace for Peter. I got grace for Rhoda. I got grace for the whole prayer meeting, okay? Because the reality is, a lot of the time, I know what to pray, but I don't actually believe it will happen. And I think a lot of us are like that too. We know the prayers to pray, but do we actually believe by faith that they're going to happen? Or are we just trying to be obedient and trying to say those things out loud? But there's more. Rhoda keeps insisting it's Peter. And they don't believe that, right? But they kept saying, but they will believe it's his angel. Okay, do you know what the early churches did? They invented their own theology. The Bible nowhere teaches that anywhere. The Bible doesn't teach in any part, any form, that somehow an angel can appear in our form of us. And so, so they will believe a newly invented theology over the fact that their prayers have been heard and answered and Peter's at the door. So the whole prayer meeting, I was arguing, Rhoda's like, he's here, he's here. They're like, no, he's not, no, he's not. And it's like, you're out of your mind. No, man, it's just his angel. And they're all arguing and there's Peter. <laughs> right? Like he's at the door. He's like, hello, I'm here. Can you please let me in? So they finally go, <laughs> I, don't you love the Bible, honestly? Don't you love the Bible? I love the Bible. They finally go. They open the door. They're all amazed. They see Peter. You're right. He is released. They freak out with, a, with emotion and joy and the commotion. And Peter's like, shh, you're going to get me killed, man. I just, you know, stop it already. Like, it's too much. Go inside. Go inside. Quiet, quiet. Quiet, whatever. It's like middle of the night. What are you doing? So many people are probably looking for me right now. All these things are happening. It's just, just, just an incredible scene. So what a moment for the early church, eh? Um, such grief, such joy, uh, such anguish, such glory, in some ways such doubt, but it becomes such overwhelming faith. Man, Lord, work in our church. Work in our church, Lord. I just, you know, like one application from Acts 12 for us right now, get off the bench in terms of prayer in this church. Get off the bench. Some of you are like, man, I'm afraid to pray. I understand that. I remember when I was newly saved and a believer. I remember being in my first Bible study and they opened, they, they say, open, open your Bible to the book of Philippians. And I'm like, I didn't know the Philippines was in the Bible. Like I remember, like that was, that was literally where I was at. I had no idea where to go. And I remember, I remember an early believer in a group of young adults, they were like, hey, what are we gonna do? Every person pray to the person on your left. And I'm like, what? That means I gotta pray? I was like, oh no, I'm so scared. I remember going around and being like, I have no idea what to say. And so I just copied everything the person said from my right. I just passed it on to the person on the left. You know what I mean? Because like, I was terrified. But you gotta start somewhere. You gotta start somewhere, right? And I'm telling you, just have faith. Like to not pray, that's, that's not the answer. Oh, I'm afraid. I don't know. I'm not gonna pray then. All the way to heaven? Really? Really? You think that's the, that's the answer? I won't pray. You, so, someone else pray. Really? I mean, start, okay. You know the easiest thing you can do? Open scripture, man, and just pray. Could you form a couple of prayer lines off of Acts 12 so far? Like, I mean, that's, I do this every morning, right? As clean this, I was in Psalm 89 this morning, among other places. So blessed. But let's say I'm in Acts 12, and I, and I read verse 5. So earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. I could stop and say, God, um, would you build my life with earnest prayer? 
God, would you, would you cause my family to be filled with earnest prayer? God, would you let earnest prayer be seen in the church that I belong to? God, would you help me to believe more? And you, all of a sudden, you start to start rolling. You start rolling. And you're kind of sitting there, whatever, and you, you go through and you read another verse and again, and you can say that, you know, whether the joy of Rhoda and just the, the answer prayer, God, would you help me to be a person who believes in the joy when I see your prayer and the faith to know that could happen? And God, would I be more like, just again, you just, you just take it and just start, just start talking to God. Like, start somewhere. Pray a sentence. Pray a verse. You can pray in the, maybe you're praying the car ride, grab your wife's hand, but just don't drop the wheel, t- t- steer the wheel still, okay? But you can grab your wife's hand and pray on the way home, just a, just a sentence. God, thank you for your word today. I'm not saying the message is good, I'm saying the Bible's awesome, okay? That's what I'm saying, okay? Uh, thank you for Acts chapter 12. Thank you for a gathered, whatever, just, just start somewhere, start somewhere. You're guaranteed to be blessed. I'm not telling you guaranteed to be easy, but you're guaranteed to be blessed, power of prayer. God, God, build, build in us, build in us a desire. So you have heartbreak, earnest prayer, an impossible situation, answer prayer. You have a miracle, but doubting prayer. Let's end here. The enemy is exalted, yet he doesn't have a prayer. As in, he doesn't stand a chance. Verse 18. Now when day came, this is, this is tragic. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers of what had become of Peter. Okay, so again, living the text, you're one of these soldier sentries. You, you wake up, deep sleep. You wake up, you look beside you, and the chains are there, but Peter is gone. And you're like, uh-oh. Right? Like, I mean, you're like, what? Because here's what, here's what the law was. The law was if a prisoner escapes under your watch, then you are sentenced with the same sentence that that prisoner was under. But so just imagine being one of those four soldiers at that time, and they would just be like, you've got to be kidding me. And notice it says in verse 19, and Herod searched for him. So Herod's prize is gone. Like James was a prize, Peter was the prize. His prize is gone, man. He's so mad. He's so humiliated. He searched for him. He did not find him. He examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. He puts his tail between his legs and he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry, so sometime in the near future, Herod was angry at the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. They're kissing up to him, persuading Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food, right? So Herod's in a huge position of control here. Verse 21 On an appointed day, Herod put on all his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne. Josephus describes this same event. Again, Josephus, like kind of like first century historian. And he says his robes, Herod's robes, were shining in the bright sun, like just kind of illuminating in human glory, so to speak. And he delivered an oration to them in verse 22. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. And Emilius. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Whoa. Look at verse 24. But the word of God, here's a contrast, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Now, Luke is writing, obviously, chapter 12 with purpose. Notice, 
Verse 1 of chapter 12 begins with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod in total and full control. This chapter ends with Peter released, Herod dead, and the church thriving as much as ever. Who's in control? Our God's in control. Hey, loved ones, I'm telling you, as you look at this too, man, as you look at this, so often what we do is we just look at a page of our story or we look at maybe a chapter, but we fail so often to look up and see the whole story, right? Like if you take the last week in our world and you just looked at certain events and you look at what's happening, if you look here maybe at your life, you look at one page or one chapter, it's all you look at, man. You gotta look up and see the whole thing. Okay, for instance, if you're a disciple and all you do is live in chapter 12, verse one, you're depressed, you're like, forget it, I give up, I'm done. You go to verse 5, and you live in verse 5, you're like, okay, well, there's some hope. There's some hope. You go later on to verse 7, you're like, man, God's moving. God is awesome. Then you come to verse 20, 23, and all of a sudden you're like, man, God is the best. He's awesome. I'm with him, man. He's the one in control. Verse 1, totally depressed. Verse 20, 24, you're like, I can't lose with God. He is that awesome. I'm telling you, encourage and discipline yourself. Look up from just the page you're looking at right now in terms of your life. Look beyond the chapter you're living. Look up and see the grand story of redemption and to see how awesome our God is. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Listen, the futility of opposing God. The futility of our world trying to come against God. And Herod here, Herod here is a microcosm of the greater narrative. Herod in chapter 12 is a type of the Antichrist who is yet to come. The man of lawlessness as the Bible describes him. Who at one point, one day soon will be raised up and take his position on his throne declaring to be God and receive all the glory and then will assemble an army to come and fight against the Lord Jesus Christ with the nerve that he has to do that. But Jesus Christ will meet him and riding on his white horse and Jesus Christ will just speak. The very words of his mouth will come a sword and he will obliterate in a moment. It won't even be a contest. In a moment, all Antichrist, the devil, all his enemies, anyone who's with them will be absolutely defeated in that moment in a split second by the power and the glory and the might of Jesus Christ the Lord who is the awesome Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah as well. We can clap for that, amen, it's awesome. And this is, this is going to happen soon. Herod is the type. Herod stands up in his self-glory. Herod ends up suffering the greatest humiliation ever in this sense. Eaten by worms. And dead. And the church moves on. And again, the Antichrist, the same thing will happen. Massive humiliation. Will suffer eternal torment in the lake of fire, the Bible says. And all who belong to him will suffer the same. But listen, then who can be saved? Who will be saved? Those who are saved are those who are washed by the blood of the Lamb. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Because they have received forgiveness of all sins. And therefore they are on the side of God Almighty. They are a child of God adopted into his family. Because listen, they've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Say, how do I get washed by the blood of the Lamb? By believing in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, declaring him Lord and putting your absolute life and trust in him. 